You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. So, Martin, in 2019, one of our companies, the Brand Institute of Australia, ran the National Reputation Awards, and the winner that year was Google. Uh, the reason that they won was essentially that they do what they say. And there was nine particular metrics that we investigated. And then we presented them with the award in 2019 and so on and so forth. If you've ever been inside one of those big major tech organizations, and we've been inside, we work with Microsoft, Apple and Google, their capability is exceptional. And I know this week something popped up in my news feed that they have launched career certificates in Australia. I found that to be interesting. And I also noticed that the rankings or the, the university rankings were released in the same week. Very interested to get your read on both those things. Well, it's very interesting that you've picked that up, Carl. And yeah, I think the world of big, big tech is a long way from the, the world of our universities at the moment in its culture and its, and its feel. Um, I, found, I, I noticed the Google certificates, career certificates launch as well. I, I noticed commentary on that suggesting that there were no universities present in Australia when that launch was made. And you, you couldn't help but notice the, um, the way that different universities were jumping all on the rankings. I mean, I, c I can remember working in the sector and people saying, we like all the rankings, particularly the ones that we do good at. Um, and that's very much reflected on how people then, then use them. So those that have gone up in the rankings in this latest exercise are, are all over it. You, you wouldn't... Mm. You wouldn't fail to see that they think it's important and they think they've done well. Those that haven't done so well will be quiet this time and will be equally um, voluble when they come along. But, um, yeah, reputation is one thing. Um, but as you say, being authentic in, in delivering that reputation through experiences is, is something quite, out, quite different. And that dissonance between those two bits of news this week, I think, is fascinating. I think it comes down also to market position. Surely in other sectors, we know that there are particular brands that speak to quality and that's what, where they go hunting and they need to demonstrate quality through things like rankings. And then there's other, other organizations and, and players within sectors that um, are disruptive and looking for different audiences. And so even in the micro um, experience design world, just say you're designing an experience for a bank, you know, you've got quality seekers, particular audiences that do make decisions and they have key drivers based on quality. So those university rankings would speak to that audience, whereas others don't give a hoot. They're really just interested in the quality of experience or in, in more commercial terms, sometimes it's price point or practicality. I think maybe, uh, are we seeing a, a divide now in the audience within the higher education sector? Some of the, the universities that we see in Australia still, and rightly so, promoting their legitimate standing as a quality, quality organisation, while others are maybe looking into the crystal ball to say, I'm not going to compete in that space anymore, I'm going to go hunting elsewhere? Probably two other things that have been really prominent in the higher education media and press in this last month or so. One has been the, the government's commitment to new places for underrepresented students has, has probably seen that attract all of our universities to suddenly be making a, a case for them being the place to be for underrepresented students and making provision in that way when it hadn't been so much of a focus for them before. 
The other thing that I really noticed now we're getting towards the end of, of this semester and the academic year is we saw a real lot of, um, coming out of a pandemic, we saw a real lot of traffic around the return to busy and vibrant campuses from universities when we got to July. It happened in, in February too. Um, trying to paint a picture of, of, based on reputation and based on whatever the quality and price point might be, of, of our campuses for face-to-face -face learning being where students would, would find great experience and, and where they'd enjoy being. And you, you don't find it from the um, comms departments of universities at the moment, but there's a, few, there's a few photographs going around on social media of the experience of some of academic staff standing in front of empty lecture theatres, delivering lectures that are being accessed online um, at the time or later, but the opportunity to attend face-to-face -face is not being taken up by busy and vibrant campus attending students in the way that we would like to build a reputation for doing that. So I think we've got some real issues in the sector right now about how we get authentic in some of that positioning, how we find genuine ways of engaging students and how we find some really effective ways of de de delivering inclusions in accordance with current government priorities. And the guest that we've got this week is give some great examples from another part of the world of how some of those issues have been juggled. And we'll head to our guest just after this short message from our sponsor. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Our guest today on HEDEX is Professor Ian Dunn, who's been the provost at Coventry University in England since December 2018. And that comes after more than 30 years in various roles at university, from a lecturer to a dean to a pro-vice-chancellor of student empowerment and a deputy vice-chancellor of the student experience. Beyond the university, Ian also chairs the board of the UK-based National Centre for Entrepreneurship in Education, which seeks to support higher education to build its entrepreneurial future. And after a lifetime of service to one of the UK's youngest universities, he's seen it become ranked top in the UK by The Guardian for graduate career prospects in 2021 and 2022, and first in the UK five years running now for providing overseas student experiences. Ian, welcome to HEDEX. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. Ian, that, that, that's um, quite a journey, 30 years in one place, and you've been on a long and highly successful personal journey through academic and leadership roles at a university that, you know, you're about to tell us more about this, but it's a great example of a disrupting and a fast emerging new innovator on the global scene. But tell us about, in the context of that setting, what your personal journey journey is, how you've come to be at Coventry, and perhaps even more importantly, why and how you've stayed there for so long. One of the UK's youngest universities, younger, I think we could describe ourselves these days, there's, a, there's been quite a raft of new universities created since since we came about 30 years ago and I've been uh, in the university um, for as a member of staff for all of its 30 years. Why stay with Coventry for so long? Um, I don't feel like I've stayed in in one job you know I haven't stayed in one place doing one job for for 30 years. I've been in one place I agree but the opportunities and the the chance to 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 do all sorts of 
interesting things with some um, amazing leaders in, in Coventry that have been really inspirational to to, to me um, has been utterly fantastic. And my current vice chancellor and I work, have worked both at Coventry for a very long time. We work really closely together. Um, and I, I often think to myself, well, if I were to move, would I have the same opportunities to 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 innovate, to to be creative, to move on to to jump around and to do lots of different things, or would I be expected to be more fitted into a into a, into a titled box? Well, you use the words innovative and creative there, and and I think it's widely understood that Coventry is a, a standout amongst the UK's universities with a reputation for innovation and being creative. And going where where others maybe haven't. And for instance, you've campuses in in higher education cold spots in the UK, such as Dagenham and Scarborough. You've an extensive online offering. Um, how has Coventry come to be such an innovative and differentiated player on the UK higher education landscape? I think ultimately, it is an understanding that we developed quite early in our history as a university after emerging from being a polytechnic into becoming a university, that no matter how good we we are, um, the funding regime that preceded allowed institutions to set up on a different basis to, to create um, a much more solid and early research structure, which is a very expensive thing to do. And if you want to develop um, the full range of university activity that it wasn't going to come in the same way that it come from the previous generation we've got to build it in a different way um once we got that sort of idea moving then thinking about um those those twin aspects of protecting what we think is good about what we do and what we think is good about what we do is um great education to a very wide audience, a very diverse student population, and fantastic research with impact in those areas that we choose to uh, to focus on, those interdisciplinary areas, not trying to be the um, all-encompassing research university that, that, that researches across all, all disciplines. I think that's the that's the core of in why we think we, we need to innovate, why we think we need to um, be different, why we need to have multiple strands to our education portfolio why we need to have that research with impact focus in fact research with impact um some ideas that came from from sharing thinking with colleagues at university of south australia back in a day when they were developing um, um, um their research um uh, profile um so so that that was that's really important and you have to sort of check, check yourself on these things i think sometimes the making sure that it's not innovation for the sake of innovation or innovation for the sake of disruption. It has to have purpose that fits with our, with our mission. And that mission is, is, is about a set of very straightforward values of quality of transformative education, of diversity, of population, of reaching into um, individuals and areas' lives and, and, and helping them to, to build but being um, a transformation partner to the individual or to uh, a region from an economic development perspective um, in order to support that transformation. Um, Dagenham, Scarborough, interesting that you pick up on those two uh, examples. Both are very 
very proud of, but but both of them grew out of something that we did in Coventry in 2012. The tuition fee for UK students was being increased to £9,000, and that was all borrowed on a, a, a repayable, on a loan basis that, that was repayable post-graduation and post-getting um, a job of a certain salary. Um, we thought at the time, uh, and still believe, that... For some students, particularly from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, um, no matter whether that's a loan that they don't know whether they're going to repay or not, it, it, it's it's still a um, a factor which blocks certain people taking a higher education, which is a which is a real shame. You know, the loss of talent is uh, is not inconsiderable, and so um, we introduced what we called uh, Coventry University College at the time at four thousand eight hundred pounds in a very different form of education. So um, a short block delivery, um, delivering six intakes a year so that students can start uh, at any point in the year and roll on, roll off with intermediate qualifications at the end of um, the, the first phase, the first year of study, the second year of study, and then a full honours degree at the end of the third year of study so that students can hop in and out if they wanted to, if that's what their lives meant and, and dictated. Um, and we did that in Coventry. Um, we had a target of 400 students in the first year. We took 620 on, onto the onto the programme. Um, and subsequently, um, we became involved with people in Scarborough um, and built a campus there. Um, Scarborough, particularly interesting. It's in, in Australian terms. These are trivial numbers, but, 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 but bear with me. This is the UK. It's 50 miles to... Um, York, it's 50 miles to Hull, and it's 50 miles to the Teesside. And that's where the other three higher education uh, locations are. Nurses particularly were leaving the town to train in either any of those three places and never returning to the town. So the hospital was was desperately in short, short of nurses. Um, just those sorts of local transformations uh, have been really, really fundamental. And now where that campus is starting to move from being a very super local campus to being a regional campus. Uh, and it, it is our view that we'll use that to, uh, with the local council to develop uh, economically that, 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 part of, um, that part of the world and that um, interesting little town in, on the Yorkshire coast. So yeah, we, we've done that. We did, we did it again in Dagenham. Um, we've then um, established um, a campus in, in Wrocław in, in Poland um, because the UK left um, uh, left the European Union. We we had a very large European contingent and very uh, important part of what we do, both from a research funding perspective and a student perspective. So we established a small campus uh, in a in a very innovative and uh, developing city in uh, in Western Poland, um, where we were welcomed enormously by the by the Polish system uh, and by the local government, um, and and actually create a partnership and. Um, Develop that, and that's that's now starting to grow as well. These are very um, innovative um, steps to be taking, aren't they, for a, a younger university as you've described it? And um, they, they are unusual in the UK context, and I think somewhat unusual on the global one. Do you, do you do you wish that others in the UK had been as entrepreneurial as Coventry has has been? And and do you have a view on if they haven't, why they haven't? Some haven't because they don't need to be, uh, and actually it might be disruptive to their 
um, their reason for being, and, and that's perfectly, perfectly understandable. I, mean, I know, and certainly not necessary. It would be catastrophic if everyone tried to do all of the same things. And so I think the bringing some diversity to the sector is actually quite um, interestingly important. I think the the sector is is actually full of creativity. The system can be a bit overbearing sometimes. We're, we're big institutions, and that's um, it's about how you try and liberate. I think that creativity and make sure that it's within the direction of travel of the institution, but 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 doesn't stifle little projects which could become big things. Um, and um, that's that's an interesting balance of, of leadership. I think that that you have to take. I think you described it as as some of the values of Coventry University that were the the purpose to and and mission of the place that drove why you'd done some of the things that you have. And I, I get a sense that um that uh one of those is around the issue of I think you used the word diversity. I, I might describe describe it more broadly as inclusion in 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 the the sort of students you're giving an opportunity to, which I, I don't know if, if you see that that's emerging as a as 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 a driver of differentiation in some of our universities. Um, and do do others besides Coventry seem to make it a real point of difference in in the extent to which they can include underrepresented student groups and help them succeed? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, in the UK, we now have a, a regulator drive um, that requires us to be much more inclusive. You know, the um, through the Office for Students uh, and our access and participation plans, we are required to demonstrate how we're going to be more inclusive of, of, of all types of students from, from all types of backgrounds. I think sometimes we forget when you are, you, you have to learn how to be an inclusive institution. Um, it isn't just about admitting the student. It is about then making sure that they have all of the conditions to be successful when they're with you. And... I think even more importantly is recognising that society has its norms of operation and industry and commerce get into ruts about recruiting students from particular places. And if you're going to be truly an inclusive institution, it's not just about getting the student in or making sure they're successful, but it's also making sure they go on to really interesting careers. We have a, um, a social responsibility, to my mind, to uh, as university leaders to go out into that community and to to make the case for for that inclusion reaching into in, into their places too get a really strong sense in that student success and that equity um consideration is really all pervasive in the the thinking that you bring to your role at coventry you, and 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 i think you've mentioned once or twice in the interview so far the um, the, the world of online learning and the way that we use technology in online and in campus delivery of education. I wonder if you can help us understand how you're utilising technology and, and maybe more specifically learning analytics to support your sure. drive for equity and inclusion. Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting and developing area. We've been, so at Coventry, we, we, we launched our first fully online um, degrees um, back in 2017, 18. Um, Sorry, we, we had little pockets of of um, craft industry that had set up before that, which were wonderful, but weren't scalable. Um, we set up a scalable entity. We set up our own OPM, if you like, our own um, um, online project management company, Coventry University Online Limited, 
which was designed to do that, to to do the media production, to do the learning design, to do the tutor and student management and, and, and so on. That, um, and we created a really interesting, um, uh, it was really hard work, but with with uh, Deakin in in, um, in Melbourne, we uh, we created a joint online degree in entrepreneurship uh, through FutureLearn. Really, that was fantastic. That was, that was um, um, uh, Beverly Oliver when she was uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor at, uh, at Deakin before she retired. Wonderful, wonderful to work with. And then with Liz uh, Johnson as well, um, subsequently. So um, really interesting sort of space to, to experiment. Um, we see that as um, uh, the starting point, which has then led us to explore in a very much more profound way the um, edtech world and about how we reconstruct the university from, an, from a technology perspective so that synchronous and asynchronous learning on campus and online can work in conjunction with each other and together and at the same sorts of paces. We're, like many universities, I think we're, we're probably in the UK context quite considered to be quite well ahead in thinking on this and in implementation. My worry is that once you start, you then realise just how little you know. And um, actually not not starting in the first place is, is a much more blissful place um, <laughs> than, than this. What I now know is that it's going to take 10 years more um, to really um, to transform uh, all of this um, because some of our systems are so embedded into the institution that taking them out and reconstructing them in a different way is... Um, is a major act of transformation and of culture change, and that's that's that that's really big. So, what what I'm getting around to saying is that we're at Coventry. We're in the um, process of seeing two layers, if you like. Uh, one layer, which is a, a data layer. Um, so, using a, a CRM, we're using Salesforce um, as a student relationship management tool from pre-enrollment through to alumni trying to document every single point of contact that we have with that student uh, as an individual and with cohorts so that we know so that we can store all of the data so we will no longer um, work with an edtech company that doesn't feed out their data back through our salesforce platform into our data warehouse um, in the middle of all of this we've got an edtech ecosystem that is designed to be plug and play so if something good comes along, we can plug it in. Using LTI and API technologies, it plugs in. It shares tech and data and so on. Um, something better comes along. The idea is you unplug it and you plug in the new thing and uh, it all works. We'll see. Um, so data is a first layer. The, the, the second layer is the sort of user experience layer, trying to um, bring all of the visual the university and all of its services into one place because the student in their normal life will go on to an app and be able to do all sorts of things through that app. At the moment, the university is a series of disconnected um, experiences in that, in that world. And so we have to bring that user experience layer together to, um, um, to, to replicate what, what, what they're experiencing in, 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 in other parts of life. I always say to my colleagues, you know, if Uber had chosen to be a, um, a call, calling platform 
uh, a second app, which was a mapping device, a third app, which was a payment device, and a fourth app, which was a feedback device, we would never have used it because we wouldn't have jumped between four apps to do those things. It's only because it's a beautifully seamless sort of experience that we that it's so easy to use. And we have to make the university experience something like that. So the learning management system, the peer mentoring app, the the, the, the resources app, and all of those things linked together. And then students can flow seamlessly through um, all of that, um, uh, that ed tech. Going back to your question about the, the, the data layer and about the learning analytics, um, for me, there are three ways in which we need to use it. The first is, which is we're getting quite good at, which is engagement and being able to understand when a student is disengaging or, or is better engaged and doing something about it at that point. You know, if they're disengaging, knowing how to um, how to re-engage them. The second um, point is about their learning and understanding their how they're learning at, at a particular point, or understanding the proxies, the data proxies for that learning. I think is really the the key to us being able to individualize the learning experience, to be able to feed more information sort of foundational studies to the student who's struggling with a concept as they struggle with the concept or to to be able to feed some stretch materials to the student who's just saw you know, who's flown through through that content so that recognizing that a class isn't at one point but is at multiple points of, of, of their learning journey and the third stage is probably personally the most important which is about their their well-being and understanding when through the data that a student may be feeling uncomfortable stressed finding things difficult um or, or more seriously um becoming very anxious and potentially on, on the edges of suicidal um and being able to recognize that early so that we can feed the services in we have the services it's just making sure that we can feed the services. I'm not in any way suggesting that we can stop some very unfortunate things happening. We can't. Uh, people will always make decisions. But I always want to be able to have um, done our best in the situation um, to, to, to support our students uh, in a very profound way. So I think learner analytics and the AI to manage that huge data set that we own as a university with permission from the students it gives us a real opportunity to um, to personalise their learning journey. That's a, a fascinating and very passionately described picture of uh, a very student-centred view of, of the world and the mature way in which you as an organisation are working with others to develop technology with a clear, what seems to be a very clear user experience and technology strategy to, to make that possible. I wonder if I can just um, probe at that a little bit further. I was fascinated to hear and read about what I think is called the Disruptive Media Learning Lab at Coventry. And I wonder where that fits in with what you've just described to us as the sort of philosophy and the, um, and the strategy behind your student-centeredness student and user experience at the university. The DML was something we set up about um, uh, seven or eight years ago, and actually has just fault has just moved in and changed to become part of our Office of Teaching and Learning, um, uh, on the basis that actually it needed to be disrupted 
um, and, and to move on to the next generation. So the disruptive media learning lab is is not lost or all of its uh, key attributes and its uh, approach to experimentation is, is, is very much uh, maintained. But the idea of bringing it together into the Office of Teacher Learning is that we bring the, the more traditional academic developers in. I think part of its problem previously was it was innovating wonderfully um, and then came up against the wall of the, the mass university and wasn't able to industrialize the, um, uh, the those innovations. What we've now tried to do is to bring those two things together so that we can start to industrialize, so that we can share um, the learnings that, that we have. But the DMLL did all sorts of um, innovation in, in both technology and in just general education thinking, translating the course design process um, to a sprint in a, in a, in a sort of agile um, project approach, get all the people together, including some students, and um, lock them in a room for a week and uh, not let them out until they've designed a new, a new course um, and, and written all of the documentation to go with it sort of thing, uh, was, was, was one of their great innovations. I'm not sure the uh, imprisonment bit was personally allowed, but, but anyway. Um, the DMLL um, led a whole batch of research um, knowledge transfer type interface projects as well um, to look at um, aspects of learning that are or aspects of technology to support learning which are on the edges of uh, of possible um, and so as I say what we've done now is to is to try to bring together the best of that and the and the best of the standard academic development process so that we can we can innovate and and, and translate uh, much more efficiently much more effectively to to everyone I sense I know what your answer is going to be to this last question because it sort of comes through in everything you're saying. Are you enjoying heading up innovation at a leading UK university in 2022 after, I'll repeat, I'll repeat the big number again, more than 30 years at the place? <laughs> um, yeah, the 30 years bit isn't, um, isn't a problem at all. I think the, um, the last two and a half years of, um, of, of surviving pandemic has been... Um, I think more demanding on on more people than than we imagine, and the I think we need to figure out how to make sure that we are um, supportive and kind to each other in in processing the last two and a half years. Um, I certainly feel, um, well, I am considerably older than I was when I went into it, but it feels like it's it it's had a multiplying factor rather than just the straight linear years. Um, it, it's been, it was quite tough, and um, um, but it has highlighted to me the need for um, even more innovation because things are getting tougher. As you say, as you said to me at the beginning of this, um, universities are not the most popular um, um, policy uh, item on the agenda of government at the moment. In fact, in the UK, quite the opposite. Um, Money is tight and is going to be tight for some time because we've got to pay off some of those, some of those things that we had to do during during pandemic, um, and higher education is not going to be the first on the list to receive extra cash. So innovation, creativity to look for new ways of working and new ways of being efficient and effective. Uh, so innovation is going to be more and more important as, as we move on through the next five, ten years, in my opinion. Well, I'm absolutely sure you're right. And for being our guest on HeadX today, Ian, and for describing 
um, so clearly and articulately everything that you've been leading at, at Coventry for so long and giving so many pointers and lessons, um, both on this podcast and in your role at NCEE to the sector more broadly. Thank you very much for being our guest on, on HeadX today. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. Wow, Martin. Well, that's a that's an interesting situation from my perspective. You've got someone who's been lived essentially their entire career in one university or one place and is yet hell-bent on innovation. Quite often I, you would find a long tenure associated with a seat warmer and someone hiding, which is clearly not the case when it comes to Ian Dunn. I think he was more sensitive than I was to me emphasising the 30 years in one place. I was doing that as a as a means of drawing attention to someone that's done amazing things over a sustained period of time in very different roles. And the, the, the fact that however long you're in a place and whatever a place is, that you need to keep changing it up, keep finding new inspiration and keep, keep innovating is a very clear overall um, lesson, I think, from our interview this week. Now, now, just getting back to the Google certificates comment that we, we talked about before the interview and, and the likes of Coventry and partnerships with Google. I know in the States, Michigan and several other universities have partnered with Google in those Google certificates. I'm yet to see that transpire in Australia. Why is that? Well, it's a really interesting point, Carl. I mean, yes, we've been emphasising for some little while, haven't we, the importance of partnerships, particularly partnerships with the tech world. And there are some good examples of that happening in Australia, but there's even stronger examples that we've heard today from Coventry, that embracing of, of a Salesforce CRM and, and connecting a broader EdTech ecosystem with with that strategy, we've seen it in earlier examples and episodes from North America. So I think this is an area where we should expect to see as more authentic experiences get delivered for improved student engagement, for improved student inclusion, an increased F emphasis by Australian universities on partnerships with the tech world. The idea of digitization, I think it's a general term that's misunderstood. So we spent some time inside Google working with Google Foods, which is their cafe uh, department within Google internationally. So every Google office has several cafes. Now, you'd think that's really not much to, to, to think about. Well, Google have reimagined the entire learning experience for everyone that works at those cafes in a digital manner and in a hybrid manner. So that comes to life, they bring it to life in person. And it was astounding. So I was, th I think, I think back to that, and that was some years ago. And I consider what Google have the potential to do in terms of quality digitization, and it's almost needs to be reimagined. That term or expression of digitizing learning, it's probably not what people assume. The assumption of universities and other professionals around what digitization means, I, I think they might need to have another look at that. Well, ab absolutely is the case. We looked at it in a real hurry, didn't we, at the start of the pandemic and thought that that Zoom lectures might be a quick and a, an achievable immediate way of, of overcoming what was a previous paradigm into the... We, we had a very early guest, Sally Kiff, that referred to this as not pedagogy, but panic-godgy. And um, I'm not sure how far we've moved on even since 2020 and how we've embraced technology to provide really engaging, authentic student experiences. You, you know, here we are towards the end of, of the academic year 2022. So 
Ian had a lovely expression in the interview itself of not not um, innovating for innovation's sake or disrupting for disruption's sake, but for applying technology in smart ways with a very strong focus on the learner, on the student. You'll refer to them in your worlds as customers. We struggle with that term, but really understanding what the um, what the end user of, of our experience is, is looking for and applying technology and innovation and disruption in a very purposeful way to get those sorts of outcomes. That's that's another lesson that I think we learned from that interview. Yeah, and look, there's a, there's a part of con conditioning comes in here where outside of this sector, if, in a, if a customer has a particular experience that's favorable, that then sets the bar for every other player in that space. So then it's a game of catch up. And then who's going to take the lead next to set the next expectation? What concerns me with higher education is that the, the budget required to digitize to a quality that is now required around that conditioning outside of the sector is so significant that my advice to universities would be to partner as quick as you can with big tech or ed tech to make that happen because they're not going to be able to build it themselves from a budget perspective or in terms of time. I, I think that's a really good point. And it's it sort of um, it sort of points to the, the nature of leadership and the culture in the higher education organization that's going to make that change. But it also points to, and it comes back to your comments before the interview about price points and quality positioning. I find it interesting that Ian's there from Coventry University. It's a younger university, as he described. It's not one of the traditional, long-standing, historical universities in the UK. Probably hasn't done very well in the um, most recent rankings. I didn't bother to, to look, and I'm not sure that Ian's preoccupied it, by it. But sometimes it's those without the trappings of history and tradition and sunk assets and everything else that have the scope to make the biggest changes, have the need and the scope and the space and the leadership executive bandwidth to, to make the more dramatic changes. And I think that will be really fascinating to see how things play out and the dynamic between the highly ranked GO8 universities in Australia in, in last week's rankings and the, the dynamic of underrepresented students and are serving them from a, the diverse range of universities we now have in this country. From the conversations we've had around that topic, I'm, I'm quite pleased to see that even the more traditional universities do have an interest and an appetite to move in that direction and not sort of fall back on their foundations. I think it's important that they do that and look forward to seeing where that, that goes to moving forward. Well, I, I, I think you're right. They, they, there is a ubiquitous interest and there's a ubiquitous need to think about how technology and how innovation is going to change student experiences. We... We all take our, ch our turns to jump on the rankings bandwagon when it suits us. We've all taken um, the chance to try and present, you know, our campuses as looking vibrant and busy when we want them to be. If, if we're going to get over the situation where our assets are, are not aligned with what students want and what they're experiencing, we're going to need to, we're going to, need to disrupt, we're going to need to innovate, and that's applying to all 40 Australian universities, I'm sure. Yeah, and according to Fortune magazine in the States, this is a real tipping point for higher education with Google going large as they have, and it's time, time to make a move. That's all we have time for on this episode of Headex. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.